0: Hi, Trevor Barone here, President of CAMP, Community Association Advisors for Management Professionals. Living in an association can come with many benefits, like increased home value and shared costs, but it does come with challenges. Uh, Our volunteer board, advisors, and vendors service the community association industry throughout Central Florida, and we want to reduce the challenges managers, community association managers, licensed managers, face every day through access to tools, knowledge, and contacts who can get the job done right. Together, we can help raise the bar for our homeowners. Now, the primary way that we accomplish this is through our monthly events. And in the month of April, we actually had two events. We had a board certification, which was open to not just community association managers, but it was also open to board members. This was our first event that uh, we were able to service both groups. And the board certification put on by uh, Carlos, Arius and Sonia Bossinger was excellent. And we actually combined it with a trade show. So we had a lot of our primary vendors there, our entire board of directors was there, and uh, we really were able to share a lot of those resources and knowledge directly to the people who are running and operating these communities and making decisions, which are the board of directors. So it was an excellent presentation. Definitely uh, please share and check out our other course Uh, April it was on websites and social media, it was an awesome one so definitely check that one out. Without further ado, enjoy.
1: We do this class very often, we're going to move quickly through the class. If you have any questions, please feel free to stop us at any point. Like I said, we do this class very often, you're not going to throw us off track. We very much want this to be interactive. We very much want you to ask questions because if you have a question, I'm sure other people are are thinking the same thing. So please raise your hand and ask questions.
2: So let's talk about the board powers and duties. And before I get into that, on our slides, you will see in the corner, we have the little condominium tower. If you see that picture, this slide applies to a condominium. If you see the house, it applies also to homeowners associations. So it's an easy way for you to set apart based on the slides who we're talking to because a lot of what you're going to find is that the statutes have really been tailored for condominiums and HOAs are dragging behind just a little bit, but they're starting to come ahead with a lot more HOA legislation. So owner, that means someone who's a record owner of legal title to a condominium, parcel, a unit, or a lot. Your board, your board of directors, your board of administration, those are all interchangeable terms which is the representative body which is responsible for administration of the association. How about your member? It's the member who is either a parcel owner or it could be an association representing parcel owners or a combination of those two and includes any person or entity obligated to pay an assessment or amenity fee pursuant to those governing documents. What do we mean by governing documents? Declaration of Covenants, Conditions and Restrictions, a Declaration of Condominium, could be your Articles and Bylaws, or your Rules and Regulations. So those are what we're talking about when we're referring to the Association's governing documents.
1: So why does the DVPR want us to talk about? What is the definition of an officer, a member, a board of director? You'd be surprised how often these issues come up in day-to-day practice. The reason they want us to talk about this is so that you understand just because you are an owner in the community does not necessarily make you a member of the homeowners association or condominium association. That is going to be laid out and defined by your governing documents. The most common example where it occurs where you are a homeowner in the community but not a member of the association is a master association with a sub-association. There are communities where you have a master association where the members of the master association are the sub-associations, not the actual homeowners. So only the sub-associations as corporate entities have rights to cast votes for issues in front of the master association. Similarly with officers and board of directors, just because you are on the board does not necessarily mean you are an officer. Just because you are not a member of the association does not mean you can't be an officer of the association. This is usually going to be dictated by your Articles of Incorporation. Most commonly, your Articles of Incorporation are gonna provide that anybody can serve as an officer, regardless of whether they had title in the community, and that anybody can serve on the board of directors. Do we have any idea why the documents would be drafted that way? Developers. Developers. When your community is first created, The developer is in control of the association, and the developer wants to have the ability to appoint their people on the board, but their employees and their agents most likely aren't homeowners in the community. So the only way for them to effectively control the board is by providing that non-members can serve on the board. But this creates issues. Obviously, once the developer is no longer involved in your community, you don't want your documents to provide that non-members can be on the board. You don't want your documents to provide that non members can be officers. This is the first thing you guys should be looking at to amend once you take over your community. It can create a lot of issues, especially when it comes to tenants. If you have tenants in your community and your documents provide that non members can be, mem- be board members, a tenant can run and be on your board. And I don't think that's a good thing for, for any community to have.
2: Your fiduciary relationship. We talk about this a lot when we refer to a board member or your officer positions on the board of directors. The officers and those board members have a fiduciary relationship to the homeowners. What does that mean? It means you have a duty to put the interest of the corporation. That's what we're running. We are running a not-for-profit corporation. That is what your condominium association is. That is what your homeowners association is. That is what your cooperative association is. It is a not-for-profit corporation. And we have to make decisions like a business, but at the same time keeping in mind that we have neighbors and we have to take those points of view when we're making those decisions to make sure that it works for the masses, but isn't necessarily going to make every single person happy. There's a lot of difficult decisions that board members have to make. So that fiduciary duty is discharging their duties, the board members' duties, in good faith with care an ordinarily prudent person in a like position would exercise. And that's important for us to realize. You don't have to do the best job, you don't have to be an expert in everything. And in fact, you are allowed as a board member to actually hire experts in fields that you don't have expertise. Not every board is going to have an accounting professor who's on the board of directors with them. So they may need a manager or an accounting team to work on those accounting functions for you just like you would hire a landscaper, just like you would hire an attorney. Those are important roles that the association can actually hire experts to serve in those capacities, (coughs) which is why we always encourage all of our clients to make sure you're working with experts that actually work with community associations. One of the reasons why we always invite vendors that do a good job for our clients because you all need to be working with people that work with associations because writing a policy for insurance, if you don't normally write condominium policies, is very different than what you all need for a condominium policy.
1: And so you also understand fiduciary duty is the highest duty imposed by law. That's really important. It's very similar to the duty an attorney has for their client, Um, and that's gonna be important as we move forward.
2: So what are the association's powers? They're quite lengthy. They're delineated in the statutes and also what's given in the governing documents. You have the power to make and collect assessments, lease common elements, maintain those common elements, the common areas, repair and replace the common elements or association property, acquire title, sue, be sued, go to mediations. There's a lot of powers that the association may have that are derived from either the governing documents, chapter 718, chapter 720, or even chapter 617, which is the Florida Not-for-Profit Corporations Act. um, Those are the statutes that we'll be talking about tonight. So chapter 718, just for the basics, applies to condominium associations. Chapter 720 applies to homeowners associations. 719 is for cooperatives.
1: So when you're trying to determine what your authority to take certain actions, the first thing you want to look at is your governing documents. That's going to be the most specific source of authority. If your documents are silent as to a particular action, then you're gonna go look at your particular community association statute, 720 (coughs) for HOAs, 718 for condominiums. Those will fill in as a default if your governing documents do not address it. But sometimes even 718 and 720 are also silent on issues you may encounter. Then we go and look at the not-for-profit corporation statute, which is what most community associations are incorporated under. And that gives very broad corporate powers. And that will be then the final default provision if you're looking for some type of authority that isn't provided in the documents or the other statutes.
2: So looking at the operations, now we notice that this slide has just condominiums on it. And there's a reason for that. So the statute says in chapter 718, 111, that the association, the condominium association, shall use its best effort to obtain and maintain insurance to protect the association, the association (coughs) property, common elements and the condominium property that is required to be insured by the association. And if you notice, the language says best effort. Why does it say that? Well, what happened here on the coast in, after the 2004 hurricanes? Do we have insurance companies that just came out of Florida and said we're not writing policies for those condominiums anymore? And that's why that language is in there, that we have to use our best efforts to try to obtain that insurance and at this point every condominium association that's in this room should have those master condominium policies and if you don't go talk to Trevor or go talk to another agent that works with condominiums as that is extremely important because we do seem to be having hurricanes more and more each year.
1: Now, Best efforts is a legal term, it has legal meaning, it means you are to exhaust all available options to obtain this type of insurance. Once you've exhausted all those options and you can't obtain it, then you're excused from obtaining it. Aside from hurricanes, the most common example where this occurs are condominiums who are wired with aluminum wiring. Most insurance companies will not provide insurance if your building's wired with aluminum. I believe there's only two in the country, and Citizens is one of them, and I know they've discontinued it, so if you didn't have your condominium insured through Citizens, they're not gonna insure it anymore if you have aluminum wiring.
2: The other type of insurance is that the association may obtain what we call DNO insurance, directors and officers insurance. And this insurance is vital. We recommend it for homeowners associations as much as we do for condominium associations because this is the insurance that protects you as a board member should your association or you personally be sued for anything that, any decisions that you've made while operating in that corporate capacity as a board member, officer, etc.
1: If you don't have do not have d insurance, you either need to get it or you need to resign. I'm not, I'm not joking. This is that important. This is the only thing that protects you individually as a board member from being sued and someone pursuing you for your assets. Well, I'm sure as a board member you hear all the time, breach of fiduciary duty, breach of fiduciary duty. Well, that's a high threshold to meet. But that doesn't stop somebody from suing you for a frivolous claim of breach of fiduciary duty. And even a frivolous claim costs money to defend. You don't have DNO insurance. It's coming out of your pocket. They can sue both. Understand the corporate entity does not owe a fiduciary duty to the members. The board of directors owes a fiduciary duty to the members. So when you're sued for breach of fiduciary duty, they were suing you as an individual. They can sue the association for a different cause of action: failure to, you know. Adhere to the documents, breach of contract, negligence. But a breach of fiduciary duty claim is against the board members individually. The only thing that protects you is DNO insurance. I can't stress that enough. Aside from paying your attorney's fee bill, that's the number second two, <laughs> most important bill. All
2: right, so this type of insurance applies both to condos and homeowners associations. And like we said, we you should absolutely have DNO insurance but it's only required in the statute for condominiums that they may obtain it. But for insurance as far as fidelity bonding, it is required for both condominium and homeowners associations to have fidelity bonding to cover the maximum amount of funds that that person would have access to at any one time. So this is important, if you work with a management company, they should already have a Fidelity Bond if they have any access to your funds, but if you have board members that also have access to funds, you also would need a Fidelity Bond to protect the association from them being able to steal money. And we hear about it all the time, it's in the newspaper actually frequently, which is kind of scary that it's still happening out there. There was a gentleman last year in the paper over in Palm Bay that was a manager just a uh, one-man show manager and is in jail right now for stealing, I believe he stole $850,000 from a homeowner's association. I mean, it's just crazy. And he was going door-to-door collecting assessments and asked for them in cash. So they don't even know exactly how much he stole, but that's their best estimate of how much the man stole.
1: And, and you could see by the language in the statute of what the legislature deems to be most important. Homeowners' associations and condominiums have no discretion. You must obtain fidelity bond insurance. The legislature wants to protect your members' assets, the money they pay. We have no discretion. Underneath that, you must use all reasonable best efforts to obtain property insurance. The legislature wants you to exhaust all avenues to protect the property. D you know insurance, what protects you? You can get it if you want. Shows you what they consider to be important.
2: Common elements for a condominium. Associations cannot charge unit owners a fee to use the common elements unless it's in your declaration, approved by a majority vote of the members of the association, or the charges relate to expenses incurred by an owner having exclusive use. And this gets to be a touchy subject. I get this question a lot. We would like to start charging a fee to use the clubhouse. And it gets a little hairy because are you charging it for exclusive use? Possibly, Are you still going to allow people to come and go inside the clubhouse? Should we really be having that membership vote or amendment to the declaration to provide for this? These are the type of analyses that we're going to make as legal counsel when those sorts of questions come up. But they come up a lot in associations. Or they'll say, oh, well, we've been charging $350 for as long as I've lived here. I don't know where it came from. And it's just this passed along mentality. I mean, how many people have heard in their associations, this is the way we've always done it? Nobody knows where that came from, right? Those people are long gone, but this is the way we've always done it.
1: So in a condominium, you can't charge a fee to use the clubhouse. You can charge a cost deposit. Anything that's related to the repair or maintenance of the clubhouse can be charged for an owner to use it, but it's different than charging a fee to use it. It's right. a use fee versus a cost deposit for maintenance and repair. That's only for condominiums and an HOA, It's going to be determined by your governing documents. If your documents allow you to charge a use fee for use of the clubhouse, in an HOA you can charge it. It's going to depend on the documents and what easement rights the owners have in them.
2: Maintenance of the common elements for a condominium association are the responsibility of the association, but the declaration may provide that limited common elements, for example, if balconies are limited common elements, may be maintained only by those persons entitled to use them. So it's, again, something that we would need to look at in your governing documents to determine what is a limited common element and who has maintenance responsibility for it. One of the stickiest subjects, and we probably get a question on material alterations, I would say, we have six attorneys, we probably get it twice a week, easily. Material alterations. We want to, and here comes the question, we want to change our building color. It's bright yellow. That was popular in the 70s. We're not daisies and sunshine anymore. We're, we're more of a blue association now. We're just gonna paint it. The board voted. We have anchor painting comi- coming out. They're gonna do the painting. And I say, okay, did you do a membership vote? Oh no, the board decided. We already, we already hired them. We hired the contract. Okay, well, let's look at your documents. And unless the governing documents provide a lesser percentage, The statute requires 75% of those members to approve that material alteration. So that means any change, and this is where it gets sticky. Material alteration is any perceptible change. Anything that you can see, anything that you can feel. The courts have held that a material alteration is where a board installed a pool heater. No one could see the heater. It, It blended in with the pool equipment, but when you put your foot in, you could feel that difference in temperature and that was a material alteration. So these sorts of issues get very sticky because that is what the statute says. And then as attorneys, we have to know the case law and not only is there case law from the courts, we also have the arbitration decisions from the DBPR that we have to review too and they make determinations on how to interpret this and they've actually created exceptions to where you don't need that membership vote. I saw you had a question.
3: If you're um,
4: like a deck, if you're not like basically
3: resurfacing the whole deck, is that going like a
1: material change? It's going to depend. What the courts say is a material alteration is the perceptible change in the use, appearance, or physical structure of a common element. That is extremely broad. Yes. So, for example, let's say we have a room that is full of gym equipment and all we do is remove the gym equipment and install washers and dryers. Is that a material alteration of the common elements? Right, we've changed the use of the room. When you're talking about resurfacing the pool deck, it depends. Is it changing the color? Is it a perceptible change in how it appears? Then we get into whether there's exemptions. Let's say the particular material that was originally surfaced with no longer is marketed, no longer is available. Well now what? What the case law provides is we have to use the most reasonably close, similar material to that particular instance. And this gets really important. The legislature just this past session passed a law that says any material alteration vote must take place before the change. This is a huge, huge implications Because in the past, if a board, without seeking advice, took action and changed something in the common elements and then was later, someone filed a complaint with DBPR, DBPR came down and said you must obtain the vote or change it back. They had the opportunity to go to the membership and get a retroactive vote. But now, if you don't get the vote beforehand and DBPR says you did it wrong, you have no choice. You must restore it. So when you go hire Anchor Painting and they paint your buildings for $200,000 and you didn't get approval. You just wasted $200,000 because now you have to restore it and the legislature has taken away your ability to retroactively have the members approve it. So guess what's going to happen now? Now they're gonna, the members are going to sue you for breach of fiduciary duty because you took an action that you had no authority to take without getting the requisite vote. And guess what happens if you don't have D&O insurance? It's really important, just about anything you do to the common elements can be considered a material alteration. Adding security cameras to the corner of your building is a material alteration. It's really important. You need to understand that. This applies to condominiums. In homeowners associations, there is no similar statute. However, your documents may provide for material alteration restrictions in your documents. It may provide for a restriction about how much money you can spend without getting a membership vote. These are all very important things. Boards need to understand that. This is a very broad concept.
2: One of the things I wanted to mention, homeowners associations, this statute does not exist for you. So anytime this comes up for a homeowners association, we're reviewing their governing documents, but a lot of times it ends up being a board vote, depending on what it is. So as you'll see as we go through this, there's a lot more restrictive type of language in the statutes for condominiums than there is currently for homeowners And these questions
1: are coming up now when when you have hurricane damage to your property and now you go go to fix it. Do we have to restore it to its original condition? Yes, you do. Unless you can get the vote or you have some type of exemption. Yes, sir.
4: Uh, Simple question. Uh, The definition of voting interest in this context.
1: That's a good question. Voting interest because it, it depends on what the documents provide who has the right to vote. For example, if you're a master association that governs five condominiums, and the only members of the master association are the sub-association condominiums, then it is the sub-associations who cast the vote. That's why it says voting interest, not membership vote.
4: Hi. Now, say if a unit owner wants to throw security cameras around the place, and the unit owner says, I'll pay for it. Doesn't cost anybody else to volunteer to pay for it. Is that still wrong
1: then? That is still wrong, because it's a common element, and the homeowner has no right to do anything to the common elements, the board does not have the authority to agree to it. Both now, the board has incurred liability, and this homeowner's incurred liability. You cannot do anything to the common elements without the members approving it, because every member has an interest in the common elements. If you are a condominium owner, you own a portion of that condominium: the building, the gym, the pool. If there's 200 unit owners, you own one 200th percent of those common elements. And nobody can change that without your approval or at least following the statutory process.
4: Is that the same thing with speed
1: bumps? Yes, if your roads are common elements, absolutely.
4: Is it the same thing with speed limit signs?
1: If a speed limit sign is being installed on common element, absolutely.
2: But it also depends for the roads, or they might actually belong to the public. So you'd have to look at whether...
1: If they're they're common element, you Correct. need to get that approval. And most likely they are. That's a different section in the statute and has different requirements for altering limited common yeah.
2: elements. Sometimes that takes hundred percent. Right, it's, it's actually a harder threshold deck, yeah. to alter limited
1: common
4: elements.
1: That's determined by your governing documents. Most of the time a balcony, which has an owner who has exclusive use of that portion of the common elements, most of the time your documents are gonna define that as limited common element, but it is entirely document driven. Architectural,
4: if we have an architectural review committee that can approve, let's say, somebody putting up windows or a panel or something like that, is that usually sufficient if you've got rules and rights that say that or you still don't have before a before? Well, is um, that a homeowners association? Condo association. It is a con- they can put in patios? Well, they can put in, like, a, you know, a walk extending out. Ordinarily, say five, ten feet or it, something like that from there.
2: It depends who owns that property. If that property, from what you're describing, is it a townhouse condominium? Condo. Pure condo. Okay.
1: Because you, you can have a townhouse that's a townhome building that's de- been incorporated as a condo. It's going to depend. Normally, Architectural Control Committees have the authority to approve or disapprove things within the condominium unit. Anything outside of the condominium unit, the ARC has no authority over. That is the board, because that is a common
2: element. So, if the path you're describing is located on association common elements, it would be a material alteration to the common elements. Versus, if that happens to be part of the unit, which would be a unique circumstance.
3: Well, I'm talking even hurricane
2: shutters, things like that. That hurricane shutters is is a different topic because hurricane shutters the board does have to adopt specifications for the type, placement of hurricane shutters, size, etc., how they're to be installed, any other specifications for a condominium association the board should have adopted or should adopt hurricane shutter specifications and from those specifications the ARB or ARC could actually review those and make sure that they're in compliance when they receive those requests. I'm
1: glad you asked about hurricane shutters because the statute actually carves that out and has separate provisions on hurricane shutters are addressed.
2: And they're not considered a material right. alteration because they wanted owners to have that protection from the hurricanes.
1: Well, before we go to the next slide, just let everyone know there's more refreshments back in the back now. So if you want to <laughs> get up and get one, you won't you won't distract us. Please go ahead.
4: Go ahead.
2: This is for both. So, thanks for getting us back on track, Marvin, to our next (laughs) slide. So, directors voting at board meetings. So, directors must either vote or abstain if they're present, and the minutes are to show a vote or abstention for each member present. And they may not vote by proxy, secret proxy, for any decision except the only exception is if they're going to vote for those officer positions. So if the directors around the table want to put the name in the hat for who they want, president, treasurer, et cetera. But what's important here and what I like to talk about on this slide are the minutes because I get to review a lot of association minutes after the fact, and what I see is, all of a sudden, these scuffles that are happening at these associations, and then they show me their minutes, and they're like, well, so and is really upset about what was in our minutes. And I say, well, let's look at your minutes. And all of a sudden, I see their minutes, and it is literally a diatribe of who said this, and she called her stupid, and uh, you know she's ugly, and this whole argument, which, is, is that what board minutes are supposed to be about? No, we are running a not-for-profit corporation. The minutes are to reflect the motions, first of all, who's present, right? Then from there, who made the motion, who seconded it, who was in favor, who was against it, who abstained. That's it, these are board meetings. You do have to allow the membership to speak on any agenda item, but as far as the minutes are concerned, they are to memorialize what happened that the board made the decisions. And a lot of you, you know, I I get invited to a lot of board meetings, so does Carlos, and we go to them and we see that the board is just facing the audience and all of a sudden and they're trying to ask me why their meetings run amok. And what I see is the president tries to say something and then someone from the crowd is yelling and then somebody else is yelling and someone else is upset about that comment, and instead, I, I come in like the Gestapo, and I bring my timer, and I say, first of all, we've adopted now actual rules and regulations, and I teach the board how to adopt those rules and regulations, so when I get to their board meeting, these are adopted. And what I do is I say, by a clock, put it on three minutes, because now we've adopted that as our rule, and I have the board sit and face one another. Because have you all ever been to a corporate meeting? Do they face their membership? No, they sit and face one another because they're a board and they want to look at each other and talk about the decisions that they're making, why a motion was made, why they support it, why they don't. And from there, what happens is, once that motion's been made, and I recommend wait until it's seconded. Because if it's not seconded, if you don't have a board member that's actually going to move it forward, it's gonna die, nothing's going to happen. Once it's seconded, then let's give our membership the opportunity those people who we also adopted in our rules have to sign up per agenda item, give them those three minutes to speak, put on that timer, and then watch them get really stressed out and they go through their three minutes, the board nods and they go, I wanna speak, shh, just listen, three minutes are up, thank you. Does the board need to do anything with what they talked about? No. They just have to listen, and that is the intention of the statute to allow your members to come to those meetings, listen to the deliberations of the board, so people can hear it, and then make the the board can actually make the decision. Sometimes they do hear what Miss Smith said. Oh, that's a good point. We didn't think of that. But now you had gave that opportunity to Miss Smith. She had a great idea, and now you can put it into play with what the board's doing. So that's what I always recommend. Um, I know we had a question out there. Ugh. Okay, Sonia,
4: uh, let's go back to the voting.
3: First. Um, is it legal for a member to this day of technology, is it legal for a member to be on the telephone attending the board meeting and voting? Yes.
2: That's what I Skype. We actually have a slide on that. Skype. Telephone conference. Um, however they can appear.
1: So, So a board member can attend by telephonic means. Right. Members cannot. It is not a hard and fast rule. If the association wants to allow a member to attend a board meeting by phone, you can. There's no prohibition, but you're not required to. You're, you are required to allow other board members to attend and to vote, and they count towards quorum if they attend by teleconference or Skype.
4: Go ahead.
2: You can. You can.
1: Go ahead. It's, it's not advisable. And the reason, and it's, it's not advisable because practically it's probably going to create problems for you and it could potentially create legal problems because the intent of the statute is to give the memberships an opportunity to have input into your decision. If you go ahead and have the motions and vote on it and it gets approved and then you let them talk about it, what meaningful input are they having? So that's legally I think that creates problems can you yes but i think it it opens you up for challenge practically i think it's a bad idea because would you feel like you had meaningful input if it's been voted on no and that's just going to create resistance so let them have their three minutes you don't even have to listen but they had their opportunity to speak
4: carlos is he describing some boards offer open forum Uh, they like to do it i i ask them to do it before they call to order or after they adjourn for the open but some like to open the meeting and then the
1: open. What, what's your name? Rick Alexander. Rick is co- talking about an open forum at the end or at the beginning of the meeting. I consider that to be different. What I am talking about are the issues that are on your agenda. Those are the issues that the membership have a right to speak on. They don't have a right to speak on anything else. So the issues on your agenda, it is my recommendation that you allow them to speak before the vote is taken. Now, at the end of your board meeting, can you open it up to the membership to talk about anything they want? Absolutely, and I encourage it. Unless you know it's going to turn into a contentious issue. But those are two different issues. But no action. No action is taken on those, correct, on open forum.
2: And here's our slide on board member attendance, like we said. Yeah, I have Go a ahead.
4: Question. Does that mean then that you need to publish to the membership the agenda items so they can be privy to what's going to be discussed? And
1: in and, and a condominium, you're absolutely required to do that by statute you must, just like you do any other notice of meeting, the notice of meeting must include the agenda. So when you're posting that notice of meeting, you must post the agenda in a condominium. And in HOA, it's de- determined by what the bylaws provide. the HOA, we
3: have as
2: far as Yes. So here's the slide on board member attendance, telephone, real-time conferencing, And then what's important here is directors who appear electronically count toward the quorum. So remember what I said on the minutes, you're going to establish who was there. You would still say Mr. Smith was here by telephone conference. Um, And they can vote as if they are physically present. And that's both for condos and homeowners associations. And a lot of what we're gonna cover tonight, like Carlos alluded to, this is what the DBPR requires us to teach you. So we kind of bounce around a little bit, but we tried to kind of contain it as much as we could. Commingling of association funds. The board shall not commingle the association funds with any funds of any board member. That makes sense, right? You're not going to be that manager and depositing those assessments in your bank account or collecting them in cash. And please don't accept assessments in cash. I have had associations do that. It's it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Um, the manager's funds, don't commingle those with the associations. However, the board may commingle operating reserve funds for investment purposes only. This one's important for condominium associations. If you ever receive a certified letter from an owner, if you're in a condominium association or in a homeowner's association, pay attention. But for condominium associations, if it's a letter of inquiry into specific issues, asking questions and it's sent by certified mail, the association must respond within 30 days of receipt But if it needs a legal opinion, the board has 60 days to provide a substantive written response and if the advice is requested from the division up in Tallahassee, the board has 10 days of receipt of that opinion from Tallahassee to provide that response.
1: So you remember at the beginning I told you we're not going to expect you to remember everything here. We just want to alert you to issues. Red flags. This is one of them. So I don't expect you to remember, oh, 30 days, written inquiry, what are the consequences? By the way, the consequence is if you don't respond within 30 days and a lawsuit commences as to that subject matter, if you prevail, you've waived your right to recover attorney's fees. That's a consequence if you don't respond to this legal inquiry. But I don't expect you to remember that. What I expect you to remember is we just received a certified letter, red flag, I need to go back and review my materials, go talk to my attorney, seek my manager's consultation. That's what you guys should remember
4: here.
2: And homeowners association we'll get to your requirement in a second on
4: the letter. Go ahead. Uh on the prior slide, the last one is a co-mingle uh okay. uh
3: this is reserve funds and operating funds. Right. Still working.
2: For investment purposes and this is one of those areas that the association really wants to work with a financial advisor that works with community associations. You do not need to be trying to get a 10% interest rate on your investments because what if those high risky investments, now you've lost that association funds, either whether they were reserves or operating funds that you've invested, that will be a case where the association will be sued for breach of fiduciary duty. But we'll never find a board being sued for breach of fiduciary duty for getting a .001% interest if that's what's offered. Um, So that's something to take into account because there's a lot of greedy financial people out there that will take advantage of associations and either tie up your money where you can never get to it and all of a sudden the association has these huge penalties to use those funds when a casualty happens and you need those funds or you know you need someone to give you actual advice of how you should tie up that money. Do we need to stagger it? How do we look at it? And there's quite a few people in the industry in the financial industry that specialize working with community associations. We actually don't even we didn't have one here tonight. But and I'll just reiterate
1: Sonya's point. Your your duty as a board member is preservation of that capital, not getting a return on it. Someone had a hand up. That's actually a really good question. It's a good legal issue because the statute says that it doesn't trigger the penalty unless it's sent certified mail. However, there are court rulings that say if you actually receive the notice, receive the letter, and it can be proven that you received it, you can't just ignore it. And that still triggers some type of responsibility. But the reason they want it to be certified mail is because as a board member, you're not required to look at your email. Maybe you didn't look at it for 20 days. But if it can be shown, oh, I got a read receipt, he received it, he read it, you better respond because you don't want to be faced with the argument that this is form over substance.
2: Moving on to amendments for both homeowners and condominium associations, you need a two-thirds of the voting interests. again, voting interest, depending on what that is as defined in your documents unless a different requirement is specified in your documents for those amendments. So a lot of times, we'll have clients come to us and say, we want to amend this, and we want to amend this, and we want to amend this, and I look at their requirements and they've never had more than 10% of their entire membership come to a meeting. So the first thing I say is, well, we're gonna have to put our boots on and actually go door to door and start collecting proxies to lower your amendment requirement. So maybe the uh, the board is comfortable for moving that two-thirds vote down to a majority. Maybe 30%. Maybe a majority of a quorum, whatever that number might be for your association. And that's something that your board can work on and actually get that amendment, go door to door, collect the proxies to pass that amendment. You're still going to need the two-thirds to actually pass that. But once you get that, then you can start making those changes to your community that really suits the needs of your community away from what the developer originally created it as because it may have changed substantially in the 10, 20, 30 years since it was originally created. 25 minutes. All right. An estoppel certificate for condos and homeowners associations within 10 business days after receiving a written request from an owner. The association must provide a certificate that states all assessments and other monies owed by the association with respect to the parcel. After last year's statutory update, there is now a whole litany in this bullet number two of what's required under the statute. If you work with a management company, they are handling this for you, or they should be handling it for you. If you're working with a bigger management company, they should. Um, And they actually are going to go through, and it's (coughs) a whole list of things parking spaces that are required, storage units, um, who the association's insurance agent is. There's a whole list of questions now that are required to be provided in these estoppel certificates that was changed in last year's the 2017 legislative session.
1: Again, this is one of those issues. Don't expect you to remember it. If you get an estoppel letter, you're managed by a management company, they're probably handling it for you. If you're self-managed, Go to your attorney. This should not cost you anything to get this done. The attorney can get it directly from the title company. There are consequences if you don't provide the correct information, if you don't provide it within the 10 days. It's, it's serious enough for you to seek out your professionals.
2: Competitive bids. For condominium associations, you're required to obtain two competitive bids if the amount or the service goods that you're looking to get for your association exceeds 5% of the budget and for homeowners associations it's if it exceeds 10% of your annual budget including (coughs) reserves. But there are exceptions to these categories and you'll see that a lot of attorneys help Tallahassee draft these bills that turn into laws because attorneys are specifically outside of the competitive bid category Mm -hmm. as are your community association managers employees of the associations, accountants, et cetera. What's important also to know is that you're not required to accept the lowest bid. And what's important here is for your association to really be comparing apples to apples when you're getting these bids to make sure that what you're comparing from one vendor, one service provider to another is actually the same type of service. Does one have workers' comp insurance and the other doesn't? Does one have qualified people who are licensed, bonded, and insured and the other doesn't? These are the type of questions that you really want to be asking of the service providers that your association is. Make it
1: easier at. on yourselves. You need to set parameters when you you know ask for RSPs. Um, you need to set the scope so that everybody's on the same playing field.
2: Collecting rent from tenants if the owner is delinquent both for condos and homeowner's association. If the unit or the home is occupied by a tenant and that homeowner is delinquent in paying the association any monetary obligation, the association can actually start collecting that rent. And there's a process in the statute. It requires a 14-day notice. And what's important to note is that that tenant, once they begin paying the association rent, they are immune from the landlord coming after them for that non-payment of rent. So it's as if they've paid the landlord, but they've actually paid it directly to the association.
1: This is, this is a remedy that I'm always a little bit leery about. It's a double-edged sword. Um, the remedy in the statute, if you make a demand on a tenant to pay you the rent because the owner's not paying assessments. The remedy, if they fail to pay that rent to you, is to evict the tenant. Have you actually collected any money? No, all you've done is removed a potential income stream. That doesn't mean we don't utilize it, it's just, you need to recognize it's just one of the tools you have when you collect. But what's important to understand is, if you make that demand, and you don't follow through on evicting a tenant who doesn't pay, what have you done? All you've done is diminish the credibility of the board. And that is, if there's any asset that a board has, is their credibility. Because if the community thinks that you make empty threats, you're just going to encounter more delinquencies, more violations. So don't send a rent demand letter if you don't plan to back it up by actually removing that tenant if they don't pay. The other thing you need to understand is the statute requires you to evict the tenant under the Landlord-Tenant Act. Under the Landlord-Tenant Act, you have to establish certain elements to prove your cause of action of eviction. First of all, you have to know who the tenant is. You have to know what their rental obligation is. The statute says they're required to pay you pursuant to their rental obligation. How much rent are they paying? So if you don't have a copy of the lease or the authority to require them to provide you a copy of the lease, it's gonna be very difficult to pursue that remedy. So you need to know that before you go down that road. Because again, the last thing you should be doing is sending empty demands.
2: The other thing that the association can do for both a condo and a homeowner's association is to actually fine or suspend an owner or their tenants, their guests, their right to use the association's common elements or common areas. And This works really well if associations have a pool and a key card. If you just have a key, it's difficult for the association if you've suspended that owner's rights or their tenant's right to use the actual common facilities of the association because who's going to be down at the pool monitoring, oh, we suspended your use rights, you know, you need to leave now, and getting into these altercations with owners. So those key card systems work really well for that, and this is for anyone that's um, not adhere to the governing documents. And this also takes a procedure where the association has to send a notice to them and determine from there you have to have a fining committee once the fine's been implemented. So this entire process. It goes before the fining committee, and they approve or reject the board's fine or the suspension of the use rights. So there is a whole process here. If you're going to implement fining or suspending use rights, definitely talk to your association's legal counsel. There's a lot of pitfalls in this area because a lot of associations do it incorrectly, unfortunately, and then they send it to us for litigation and we're having to kind of unwind some things that were done because they were not done correctly. A
1: Couple follow-ups on that. The statute specifically prohibits you from turning off utilities, which includes cable, so you cannot suspend the right to cable even if you're paying for bulk cable, and it cannot, you cannot prevent them from ingress and egress to their home or their lot or their unit. So whether that's used through the elevator, the stairwells, to the road. What you can do, and what is actually the most successful way to use this, is if you're a gated community and you have residents who aren't paying, you can deactivate their transponder so they have to go through the guest lane until they pay. Now that that has been controversial in the past. People have argued that this is impairing their ingress and egress. But it's interesting. The statute used to say you shall not impair their ingress and egress. That was changed a couple years ago. Now what it says is you shall not prohibit their ingress and egress. And attorneys like me like to argue that is a clear indication of the, by the legislature to allow you to deactivate transponders because you're no longer impairing, or you're not prohibiting, you just make it inconvenient. So I think that change of the statute really clears up that issue. But that's really where I find it to be the most useful is, is gated communities.
2: The other thing I wanted to bring up is leaning for fines. For condominium associations, you cannot lean for those adopted fines. But for homeowners associations, you may if it's within the association's governing documents. And I have a lot of associations that come to us and say, well, we find them for over $1,000. Please place a lien and foreclose on that lien. But your governing documents actually have to provide for that authority. Because the, associ- the uh, statutes actually just say, may lien. It doesn't actually provide for that authority to lien and then foreclose for that amount. Go ahead, turn Back to the previous screen about
5: the 5% on the bid, uh-huh. um, that insurance um, and does that have to be done every year or is it, if you do it once can you stay with that same person
2: it would depend technically you supposed to bid that out every single year Ooh but a lot of associations the way that they've always done it is they you know they bid it out they have those proposals those are part of your official records and they just keep them on record and from that point forward you know once they're ready to change or make a change they do it that way I think that would be a gray area just based on the fact that it's such a large expense. But you should really have that second bid for the association every couple years to at least see that what you're having is both the coverage is in line, the deductibles are in line, the premiums are in line with what other associations are paying for in the area, because those change. THE WORST STORIES THAT I'VE SEEN ARE ASSOCIATIONS WHO'VE BEEN WORKING WITH ONE AGENT FOR 25 YEARS BECAUSE THAT'S THE AGENT THEY'VE ALWAYS USED AND IT'S SO-AND-SO'S NEPHEW. AND ALL OF A SUDDEN THEY MOVE TO AND THEY GET A BID FROM AN AGENT THAT ACTUALLY WORKS PRIMARILY WITH COMMUNITY ASSOCIATIONS, CONDOMINIUMS, AND ALL OF A SUDDEN THEY FIND OUT, I'M GOING TO GET BETTER COVERAGE AND OUR OWNERS ARE GOING TO PAY, I MEAN, SIGNIFICANTLY LESS 30 dollars 50 70000 less is what I've been hearing from clients that have changed oh, wow. providers. I mean, that's a huge difference. And that's where your association could get in trouble because you've never bid that out and all of a sudden now you're going to be stuck in that position where you could have saved the association all that money and not even realized it. But. A
5: uh, question on the lean, uh, situation. Where you if a person has not
2: So you are allowed, as a condominium association, you are allowed to actually seek a money judgment and even a homeowner association can seek a money judgment to collect those fines. So if you don't have the right to lien and foreclose, you can levy those fines appropriately, go through all the correct steps, and then actually seek a money judgment to collect it from that owner. If you're just leaving it on the book, so to speak, and waiting until they sell, you can attempt to collect it at that point. The problem, the risk you're running by not trying to collect it at some point is that the association may be wiped out. If a bank comes in and forecloses, they're not going to pay those fines because they're not obligated to pay them. They have a statutory amount or an amount from your governing document that they're required to pay once they take title to a unit. A third party, if they take it from a foreclosure sale, the statute says they're liable for unpaid assessments, nothing else. So you may be left just leaving money on the table that the association, if the owner has something to levy that judgment against, and that's something that would have to be analyzed and really determined if it makes sense to go after a money judgment, but in some cases it does.
5: So Does what's the title, have to leave it or
2: it... the title company has to get an estoppel letter from the association. The association's estoppel letter is going to list those fines that are also being due. The title company then they don't want a title claim from you, so or from the next person that's buying the unit from you. So they're actually going to hold that money in escrow until the dispute is resolved. That's normally what takes place in those type so of situations. And that's why it's important to make sure that those fines were levied properly because the last thing you want to do is hold up a transaction and then all of a sudden you're interfering with that relationship and impeded on their contract to sell the property when it wasn't even, the fines were not levied correctly from the get-go. All right, if an owner is more than 90 days delinquent and paying any monetary obligation to the association, the association may suspend their rights to use the common facilities like we talked about or suspend their voting rights. What's interesting about this is it does not require that fining committee to actually approve this. This is just done by the board. And you can see it's because we need the finding committee to, to actually suspend rights for for the facilities, if it's a violation of the governing documents, which is subjective. Are they actually violating the governing documents? Here, we have someone that's 90 days delinquent, it's black and white, they're delinquent, the board can then suspend their um, voting rights and and also their rights to use the common area facilities and they have to do that at a three hour board meeting.
1: No, you can go, any of you can go.
2: Correct, correct. (laughs) Well, it depends what's going on. If if they're violating the governing documents, are you a condo or a homeowners association? Okay, so a condominium association, if you're sending your friendly notices, hey, you need to do this, you you haven't done it, hey, second late notice reminder, then you have to turn it over to the association's attorney to send the petition for non-binding arbitration. We may already send a first letter but if you haven't done that or we feel we need to, to comply with what the statute requires and then from there we're actually going to file a petition with Tallahassee and we go before an arbitrator to make a decision on that case. So that's where a condominium case would go for violation of the governing documents. A homeowners association, after you send your letters and your notices and we send our letter, then we have to go through pre-suit mediation and depending on what happens at pre-suit mediation then we're getting into a lawsuit. So those are the two avenues. Go ahead. Do
4: they have to be counted if there's like two, two people that are in foreclosure and they do the fact they're not making their payments? do they need to be counted if you're going through the process of ch- doing a change of the complex, do you have to count them or then the percentage that is required to come back?
2: No, once you've actually suspended their voting rights, it reduces the number of people you need. For any of those decisions that have to be made that require those thresholds, the seventy-five percent, you're taking that off of a lesser poll. Okay, you. You're welcome. All right, all right. Holding and noticing meetings, associations must provide at least forty-eight hours of board and committee meetings posted conspicuously on the association property. Uh, notice of the annual meeting must be posted and sent out at least fourteen days in advance of the meeting. If you're trying to pass a special assessment, that also requires a 14-day notice. That must say the specific purpose of the special assessment must be hand-delivered or sent to each owner um, once the association has approved that special assessment after the fact. Go ahead.
4: Question. If, let's say, three board members get together, they go out to breakfast, they go out to dinner, they discuss some things, but they don't make vote or make any type of uh, decision. Mm-hmm. Does minutes need to be kept is that something that I've heard some people refer to that as government in the sunshine?
1: Oh god, we get that question so often. <laughs> the, the statute, if you're going to take a technical reading of the statute, <coughs> a board meeting occurs when a quorum of the board gathers to, is it transact or conduct? Conduct. Is it, conduct association business. You ask 10 attorneys to answer that question, you're going to get 10 different answers. I recommend you be conservative, you avoid that, in, that appearance, but I, I'm, I'm practical. I realize people play golf together, you're going, to have, you're going to go to breakfast together. Technically, someone can argue that's a board meeting that should have been noticed. I, I like to say that if you haven't actually moved the ball forward, you guys haven't affirmatively taken action and you're going to re-engage that conversation you had in front of the membership, it's probably not an issue. Um, But not every attorney agrees. So so the key
3: there is making decisions.
1: I don't think it's necessarily making decisions because I think, I don't think that's the the crux. Because you're having a substantive conversation that is going to inform the decision you ultimately make at a board meeting. And I think the membership, and I think the intent of the statute is, the membership is entitled to listen to that deliberation understand how you reached your your decision. So if you plan to have that same conversation at a board meeting, you're probably okay. But you can understand, because then you can have all these deliberations outside of the presence of a membership, show up at a meeting and you just cast a vote. Well, that's not the intent of the statute. Um, So it's it's a gray area. Likelihood it's not gonna become an issue, but you need to be careful. And I think a good attorney could argue that that was a board meeting. You conducted business. You had substantive conversations as to association business, that informed your ultimate decision. Go
3: ahead. I had three board members actually get busted, technically. They're walking around their property, talking, and pointing the Now that, that's
1: a little over the edge. Right, I mean, and at the same time, sometimes things, hurricane just came through. You don't have time to do certain things, so you're gonna walk around, you're gonna inspect. It happens all the time. Um, so yeah, I think that could be a board meeting. If you want to be technical and you want to be conservative, you notice it, you keep minutes. Do I know it happens all the time? Yes, I do. Does it it become an issue? Rarely, but it can.
2: And do you want the membership showing up to your golf, you know, outing? I mean, because it's an open board meeting. Once it's a board meeting, so really if you're going to meet with a quorum of the board, meaning if you have a five-person board, three of you getting together and you're going to talk about association issues, that really should be at a venue that's open to the membership. There should be minutes that follow it. Unless, like Carlos said, you're planning on just kind of playing golf and if something comes up, we talk about it, but then let's <coughs> repeat that entire conversation on the association business at that meeting. Go ahead. Um, could you
3: address
2: as Sure. So the association, both condos and homeowners associations are allowed to have closed door meetings in two circumstances. One is with the association's attorney to discuss potential or pending litigation that the association has. There's actually proposed legislation to change that to actually be any discussions that the association has with the attorney, but right now it's just potential or pending litigation that the association has until that matter is concluded. The other um, scenario is if the association has an employee and you're willing to or wanting to discuss that employee's compensation, their reviews, et cetera, that could also be closed door. All other meetings, there are no executive sessions. A lot of associations think there are, but there actually aren't. Those are the only two types of exceptions that are in the statute.
1: And the question we get most frequently is that second one, because what the statute says is matters of pers- association personnel, which is a lot more vague than an employee. But the true intention of the statute is an employee of the association. It is not a discussion to discuss whether, or a meeting to discuss whether you want to terminate your manager. Your manager is not personnel of the association, they're your agent. So it is usually direct employees of the association.
3: Does there need to be a quorum for it to be considered a board meeting? Yes. So if you only have two board members and then you don't have a quorum, so it's not a board meeting. Correct. Correct okay what about um, you know we have annual reviews of the homeowners to make sure the exterior of their homes are, are in line with the, the, the guidelines and the board usually goes and walks the neighborhood but to do that. Um, oh, that by that definition we're moving progress forward for the association it's a quorum of the board but uh, it's not necessarily an meeting, and I guess if any homeowner wants to walk around with us, they could. But
1: I, I feel much more comfortable that that is a meeting compared to having breakfast and association business comes up, because you're, you're meeting specifically for the purpose to inspect your members' homes to determine whether there's violations, which ultimately you're going to act on. So how
3: do you make that open? I mean, we, we can make notice to the association or the, the members that we're going to be coming around doing that.
1: You post a notice, essentially, of where you intend to meet, and then you put in your agenda that you're going to walk the property. Okay.
3: Or
2: you could do it where two board members and two are a thousand feet behind them. I mean, in all seriousness, and then at the end of it, you compare notes, and you don't invite the invite the fifth guy. I mean, that that's how you can do it to get around it. I mean, as long as that third guy doesn't come up and talk to you, I mean, you're avoiding...
4: <laughs> yes.
1: Right. We don't do it at all. <laughs> right. Or you just appoint a committee of the board that's less than important. Thank
2: you. Tom, can I bug you to get me a water? Thank
4: you. Yes. This question may be premature, but the second bullet uh, having to do with uh, <coughs> to transmitted, is that going to be affected by the pending legislation or legislation that hasn't come into full force yet on? on uh, Websites
1: and web yes, all notices of meetings must be posted on your website when it becomes effective. So yes, so you will you have, have to a- no, a- no, you must still. you must still post it. You must serve it electronically if that's what the membership has asked for, and you must post it on the website. You must do all of them. Not a substitute. I'm sorry. go ahead.
4: notice. Does that also include electronically? If If they've opted into electronic, yes. Is that okay that way? Yes. Okay. It appears that your first bullet is for homeowners associations only, and your bottom bullet is only
1: for condominiums. Is that true? No. 48 hours notice is for board meetings. This applies to everybody. Unless Unless your documents provide for a longer period of time. This is for a condominium where you're going to be adopting an assessment <laughs> or a special assessment. It or must be 14 meeting. days.
2: Or the, or the annual meeting. Or changes
1: to the rules, so to the rules. correct. That, that affect the use of a lot. Not just any rule. If you're doing a rule that affects the common elements, you don't need to do 14 days notice. It's a change of the rules that affects the use of the lot or the unit.
2: So the first bullet is a board meeting. The second bullet is for a membership meeting
5: but you have condominium in the second bullet and you don't mention association. That's why my question. Post it on the condominium property, not
2: post Okay, you're right. It it should have just been association property. We combined our slides where we used to have one for each and we tried to dwindle this down. You're right, it should just say association property versus condominium property. But both of them apply to both.
1: Yes. Yes. One real
4: quick one on this whole issue of the new condos we're 463 house community. We've got a real problem with that with a new state law. We've had our own uh, site for years. Nobody pays any attention to it. They all go there next door. So well, I don't know why the state's even bothering the county come do that because they're gonna have the same result.
1: I agree. We 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 were involved in trying to lobby against that statute. Yeah. We think a lot of it was very bad law. But it is the law. So and it's going
2: to be an administrative headache for managers, truly. I mean, having to post all these notices on the website, making sure all the minutes are posted, and it, it's going to be a headache. So I would expect your management fees are going up after this goes into effect. In all seriousness, for condominium associations where you're doing this, it's going to take more time unless the board's doing that themselves. Go
5: ahead. I don't know if this is going to come up, but you just mentioned posting, and I think they're going to amend that law and delay something in 2009. The posting of budgets, how do you feel about posting them on an open website? Some people want them password protected. We send them to them anyway. But is there any problem posting the budget, the minutes, and the agenda on an open to the public website?
1: You're not prohibited from doing it. I think it's a bad idea. Can you repeat the question? Can you post budgets, meetings, agendas on a (coughs) public website? And I'm telling you, you're not prohibited from publishing it on your website that's open to the general public. I don't think it's a good idea.
2: I think it also depends on what's going to be in those minutes. A lot of your owners and board members even don't want their names published out there on this website of what's happening. Associations don't want the public to know what money's coming in, what's coming out for theft reasons. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of identity theft issues happening. You know, there's... You don't want to encounter those issues for the board, so it's better to have that sort of information being password protected as much as you can.
1: All right, let's let's take a five-minute break so everybody can get another refreshment.
2: One of the questions I got during the break is the definition of a quorum. So your quorum is a percentage in your governing documents. If there is, if the percentage is over 50 percent for a homeowners association, the statute says that your maximum for a quorum is going to be 30%. So you need 30% of your owners there to actually hold a meeting. That doesn't mean you only need 30% to approve something. That is just to open that annual meeting, you need the 30%. Okay? That's for so, a
1: membership meeting. In a board meeting, you need a majority of the board members correct. to establish quorum.
4: <clears throat> Go ahead. Okay. So my
2: So, so unless there is a lower number provided in your governing documents for your association, your quorum would be 30% of the 463, which would be 120 something. Yeah. Correct. So you're still going to need to follow the document if you're trying to amend your declaration. Your declaration may require two-thirds approval to amend it. So you still need 30% to be there to open the meeting and then you need two-thirds of the entire membership to vote for it unless there's a lesser amount in your governing documents. And that's what we were talking about changing. So if your governing documents say to amend the declaration, you need two-thirds percent. You need to gather your membership and have 30% of them there in person or by proxy. But if only 30% of them in person or by proxy show up or turn in their proxy, you are not passing that amendment. You actually need 2 thirds of everyone to pass it unless you have a lower provision. So
3: that the board members that
2: 30%? They would be members, correct.
5: Okay.
2: So no, so then for you it's going to be the
5: 75%.
2: For you it would be the 75% for that particular document. So you're following whatever's in your governing documents, but if it's silent, it's two-thirds to amend. But it's always going to be 30% or less for the quorum for a homeowners association. For condominiums it's a majority. Even if, the documents say
1: otherwise. if your documents provide for a lower quorum threshold, You go by the lower quorum threshold. If it provides for a higher than 30%, the statute controls. 30% is the highest quorum requirement in HOA, period. Your documents can set a lower amount.
3: Go ahead. You'd have to do
2: the amendment to your quorum provision. Your quorum provision might be in your declaration, it might be in your bylaws, I've even seen it in your articles. But it might be in multiple places that you're now having to amend it to change the number. So then you're going to have to get two-thirds to reduce that down to whatever it is or whatever the number is required for the amendment.
4: Right,
1: right, two-thirds voting in favor, correct.
2: Correct. Okay, so let's talk about your annual meeting. All right, let's talk about the elections first and the annual meeting. For a condominium association, you're required to have your annual meeting once per year. And if the bylaws are silent as to the location, the meeting shall be held within 45 miles of the association property. And the purpose of the meeting is to conduct any association business and to fill any vacancies on the board. You have to provide written notice to the membership at least 14 days prior to that meeting. For homeowners association, you too are required to have one meeting annually for the members. It's to conduct the election of the directors if one is required to be held, and it's also to conduct any other association business for that year. This also should be sent out at least 14 days in advance, but with the homeowners association, make sure that you're looking at your governing documents because you may be required to send out a 30-day notice or a 45-day notice, so make sure that you're looking at that. For condominium associations, you are prohibited from having a nominating committee. You can have search committees, but they have no authority to actually nominate candidates. For a condominium association, your candidates are nominating themselves through a notice of intent to be a candidate form. For homeowners associations, you're going to have to check your bylaws. When we're talking about your election for your homeowners association, it is very document specific. And most documents are very different from one another as to how this process actually plays out. You may be required to have a nominating committee. I've had a lot of clients who have us review and provide them advice on how to do their elections, and we tell them you're required to have a nominating committee, and that committee was supposed to be appointed at last year's annual meeting. And they say, but we've never done it that way. And I say, okay, but you're required to do it that way, so now we have to implement it now that we know better. For condominium elections, you may serve for two-year terms, staggered or otherwise, if the bylaws or articles permit such terms, so you're looking at your governing documents. Um, And you're only having that election if the number of vacancies exceed the number of candidates. So what that means, if you have five positions open for the board of directors, but only five people turn in their notice of intent to be a candidate for that upcoming election, you are not having an election those five people automatically get on the board. If you have six people, you are now having an election because you only have five vacancies available. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Oh. Um, condo has in their bylaws that they need to have a
4: nominating committee. Does the statute trump that?
2: Yep, it's actually prohibited by statute for condos to have them. So condominiums, you're required to send out two notices for your annual meeting. The first one must be sent at least 60 days before, not 59, not 58, at least 60 days before the election. And then the second notice of election is 34 to 14 days before. Um, And with that second notice of election, you're sending out the printed ballots, the envelopes for returning the completed ballots, and the candidate information sheets. Who is a candidate? It must be someone eligible to serve on the Board of Directors at the time of the deadline for submitting a notice of intent to run. That means they can owe no monetary obligation to the association at the point that they're required to turn in their candidate for. Who is not eligible? Someone who is suspended or removed by the division in Tallahassee, if you're delinquent in the payment of any monetary obligation due to the association or a convicted felon who has not had their rights completely restored for more than five years.
4: So they can, they can actually uh, be qualified at the election or at the intent of election, sell their property and still be a
3: board member for a whole year?
2: <coughs> no, well it depends. If you have an association who board members are not required to be pars- or unit owners, then possibly they could actually stay on the board if they get on the board and then actually sell their unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Notices of intent, those are required to be submitted not less than 40 days prior to the election. It's effective when received by the association and they can be submitted by personal delivery, mail, facsimile, email, et cetera. Upon receipt of that notice, the association should issue a receipt acknowledging delivery, and you must issue a receipt if it's by personal delivery. Campaigning is allowed. Um, Candidates can actually submit a personal information sheet, eight and a half by 11, at least 35 days prior to the election. It may not exceed one page, and it can contain their background. The biggest question we get is, so-and-so submitted their candidate information sheet And there is all sorts of spewing junk about the other board members or different things that we don't believe is true, and they're saying that so and so should not be voted into office. Can we just not send their candidate information sheet out? No, you are required by statute to send it out unaltered. And the association is not, and the board is not held responsible for anything that they're putting on that sheet. So if they submit it in crayon, you're copying that crayon written eight and a half by 11 and sending it out. Go ahead.
4: Nobody sends or puts a name in in the 40-day period. Okay. The board, I believe, has the opportunity
3: to appoint board members to follow them. Is that true or false?
2: No. So you would have your incumbent board members serving the additional time period if they wanted to, but if no one submitted their name, then you technically wouldn't have a board because no one submitted their intent to be a candidate for the association. But mostly what happens in those cases, the incumbent board members just stay on for another year.
5: Even if it goes past two years? hmm yeah. so, can
4: it go on for 10 years?
2: Well, no, it cannot because if under the statute last year, if you have two-year terms and you serve for a period of up to eight, the statute says that's the most that someone can serve and then they can no longer be eligible unless there are not enough candidates available to run for the board or if a majority of the membership votes to approve that. The new legislation going in July 1st of this year is changing that from two years down to one year for up to the eight years. So what does that mean? A lot of associations are asking that question. If I've already been on the board for ten years, am I automatically booted off? Or if I've been on seven and a half years, do I get booted off on the eight year mark? No. We believe that that is from when the statute went into existence, which for two-year terms last year, one year would be this year.
3: The
2: lawyers just want receiverships. No. I do everything in my power to be a psychiatrist, therapist, whatever I need to be for my board members that are trying to resign all at once. Because I get those phone calls and I have to talk them off the ledge and say, okay, I'm probably not going to get my bill paid on this one, but let's talk about this for a while. (laughs) This is why you should stay on the board, and I'm here for you, and you can do this. And I have those conversations frequently because the last thing I want is for a client to go into receivership. You're going to have the state come in. They're going to pay your expenses. They're going to pick whatever the heck vendor they want that some national company that charges 10 times what you all would get with a local vendor here. It's just a nightmare. Your ballots, you're listing all eligible candidates, alphabetical order. If you work with a management company and you're a condominium association, they are handling this for you. They do this day in and day out, so I'm not gonna drill into it too much. You're providing two envelopes in that second notice with the ballot. Once received by the association, the ballot may not be rescinded or changed and they're not to be opened until the election meeting. That's really important, they're to be opened at the election. For condominium associations there is no quorum requirement to actually hold the election portion of the annual meeting. So you almost have to think of the annual meeting as bifurcated. You need a quorum to have the regular portion of the annual meeting where you're conducting regular business. But to conduct the election you actually only need 20% of the eligible voters to have cast their ballot. For a condo association, you're having an impartial committee appointed by the board to actually count the ballots. They can't be current board members, people running for the board, spouses, officers, etc. cetera. The business of the annual meeting continues while they fulfill those duties. For homeowners associations, it's conducted in accordance with your governing documents, which like I said, they're all different. Some associations have nominations from the floor, others prohibit it, others have a secret voting ballot process similar to condominiums, but it's all done pursuant to your governing documents. If you have a position where someone resigns, any vacancy is going to be filled by an affirmative vote of the remaining directors, or the, the board can actually choose to run an election to fill any of those vacancies. Non-eligible persons, delinquent in the payment of any monetary obligation to the association or a convicted felon who has not had their civil rights restored for at least the last five years. Who wins? The impartial committee is gonna tabulate the votes for a condominium association. Some HOAs also have those. The candidates with the most votes win. If there's a tie for the last seat for condominium associations, you're actually required to have a runoff election 21 to 30 days after the date of election at which the tie occurred. What happened in the the statutes a couple years ago is they actually added that any challenge to the election process must be commenced within 60 days after the election results are announced. This is a really great addition to the statute because we've had cases where an association board was elected, six months go by, and then someone's challenging, well, the election wasn't done properly. All that board needs to be unseated. So at least now we have a time limit both for condos and homeowners associations for those election disputes. And Tallahassee actually handles all of those disputes through the DBPR. electronic um, notices, you can actually have digital proxies that are sent. An owner can attach their proxy via email and that proxy that's attached actually counts. It can be sent by fax or email. That does not mean that in an email they can just say this is my proxy. They actually had to attach the actual proxy. electronic notices to owners, it removes the requirement that electronic notice be authorized in the bylaws. As long as the owner consents in writing, the association can provide the owner with electronic notice. What does this mean? How many of you send notices out to your membership by email? Do you still send it by regular mail? Okay, so in order to send notices electronically by email, you have to have written consent from each owner or those owners that are consenting to it to allow you to send it to them electronically. If you do not have consent from them in writing, you still must send it through the regular means in the governing documents which is likely by um, U.S. mail. So that's something important to note. Go ahead, Terry. And
5: if they've been accepting it for...
2: They can argue at any moment that you have not provided actual notice pursuant to the governing documents. You must have a document in the association's official records saying that they've consented to electronic notice.
4: Exactly. Exactly. Go
2: ahead. Correct. Exactly. And the other thing you can do in that same vote that you're sending out, Um, and a lot of associations will send it out with their annual meeting notice. You already have to send that out. So let's send a request out to have people uh, request things by email to start cutting down on your mail costs that the association has, postage copies, email is a lot easier. You can just send out that consent form for that issue and also you could actually adopt um, online voting and also have that same consent be used for another box for them to check that they're willing to online vote. And I have quite a few associations that are using the online voting. It works great for huge communities where it's hard to get people together or people off their couches. If they vote and actually click the button, they count towards the quorum. So now you're actually having annual meetings for those associations that have a really hard time even having that annual meeting or getting those votes passed because people are doing it from their pajamas on their couches, so it's really a good thing. For condominiums, there are administrative rules regarding electronic voting. and Like I said, we'll email this presentation um, to you all so you have it, but there are some requirements if you're going to adopt the electronic voting within your community. Um, Moving on to official records. Florida law requires associations to maintain the official records within the state for at least seven years within 45 miles of the community or within the county in which the association is located. For condominiums, it's five working days and I think Carlos was in this just changed to 10 working days in July um, for condominiums just like it is for homeowners associations. Um, We are authorized to maintain those records online available to a parcel owner electronically via the internet but if they don't have the internet, don't have a computer, you have to provide them access to a computer so they can look at those official records. The records must be available for inspection by owners or their representatives at all reasonable times. And the association can actually adopt rules for regulating how those inspections are to take place. And um, you can actually comply with this requirement by maintaining those records on site at the association. Owners have a right to make or obtain copies. And like I said, the association can adopt rules. And the association also uh, must maintain an adequate number of copies of the declaration, articles, bylaws, rules, and any amendments. Um, and for condominiums, the question and answer, answer sheet, and for both associations, the year-end financial statement to provide to owners upon request. When owners come to view the official records, you have to allow them to bring a device. So if they want to bring a camera, a scanner, a huge printer, uh, I've seen it all, you have to allow them to actually do that. If the association fails to provide access to those records within 10 days, the homeowner may be entitled to damages. Um, And this is where, uh, I didn't have it in here. This is where it's important when a homeowner's association, just like we talked about with the condos, your ears perk up. If you're getting a certified letter requesting that someone be able to view the official records or even requesting a whole litany of governing documents, you must provide them access within 10 working days of receipt of that request for both a condo or a homeowner's association, but this is where a homeowner's association, that certified letter um, really is important for you all. This
1: is another area where the statute says, if the owner sends this certified mail, it creates a rebuttable presumption that you willfully fail to grant them access if they don't have it within 10 days. So again, certified mail should be a red flag to you. However, it does not require it to be certified mail. If they send you an email, and you acknowledge receipt of that email, or if they hand deliver their request, you must give the access within 10 days. So what we always recommend, if you're not gonna use your manager to respond, or your attorney to respond, you should provide them a letter or a response email simply (laughs) saying, We will provide you access to our records. Please contact us to coordinate a time for your inspection. You don't have to physically go through the records to find them. You don't have to physically open up the door. You have to provide them access. So by saying, give us a time you want to come, you've now complied with statute.
2: And the statutory penalty is actually $50 per calendar day up to $500 as of this moment but that keeps being coming up in the proposed legislation to change to a much larger amount.
1: Representative Mariottis who's a, he's borders Osceola and Polk has proposed for the last 3 years to amend that statute to provide the penalty be $500 a day for up to 30 days. That has not been passed. He's been termed out. I don't think he's going to be in Congress next year, thank God. But understand this keeps coming up so you as board members, as owners, and communities should be keeping abreast of the laws and making your voice heard, because they do respond when when we push back.
4: When, uh, can you use a typical, an
1: typical, I'd say anywhere from three to five thousand dollars. Go
4: ahead.
3: Um, can the access be electronic? Mm-hmm. They request so we can say go to the website. Here they are. Yep.
1: Absolutely. You have to be careful on that, though, because if you're not providing everything through the website, not all records are available and they've essentially regurgitated the statute to you which lists everything and it wasn't all there, you might have violated the statute. Okay. Uh,
3: if we provide fiscal records, do we have to have them filed with indexes or just can they be random?
1: Totally random. That's fine. You should provide them as they're ordinarily kept.
2: <laughs> In a shoebox. Exactly.
1: Yes. Perfectly appropriate. Shoebox? box? That's my question. As
3: we're going more to a digital and a scanned life, and, you know, to save paper
2: and storage and everything else, how far do I have to let somebody
1: get into my system so they can see everything that we scan and put into the deposit? Well, most, most, at least the management companies I work with, when they obtain. <laughs> when, <laughs> Um, You know, you guys maintain official records separately, and and from what I understand, even privileged records are set apart. And when we're in litigation and we're dealing with management companies and they're asking for access to records, we normally like to go through and and block anything that's privileged. The question, it, it depends. I'm not sure how Century manages those records. You can absolutely be as responsive as possible and actually provide the specific records they're asking for if they've limited their records to a specific request. What, what The caution I advise is I don't like to assume I know exactly what they're asking for and make that decision and turn it out to be wrong and then they go ding me for $500 because I missed one document. I, I don't like to do that. But I understand the practicalities of if you're digital, and you know we can't just easily give them access to this community's documents. That's something you guys should probably be talking about with your IT people. Well, um, and it,
2: it maybe just a scenario where you, early on within those ten working days, if you provide them the electronic access here here's access for what we believe you're looking for if there's anything else we are available in the next nine working days for you to come in and inspect the rest of the right. official records but i mean if they having a catch-all if for they're
1: yourself. asking for the last two years of minutes by all means pull the, the last two years of minutes and give them to them
2: especially if, when they're a pain owner and you know it's just so much easier for your time to just give them what they're looking for but just be careful there so you're not provide not you're missing some of the documents that they're looking for and then they're gonna ding you on that statutory penalty.
3: So uh, a couple of questions here. What if we offer the member uh, a time within the 10-day period to come and review the records, but they can't accommodate that date, then does that 10-day statute... You,
1: you've, is, you've complied with the statute. I You are no longer subject to penalty. If they call you 20 days later and try and schedule, by means, go ahead and schedule it. but. You've done your duty. You made it available.
3: And then what happened because uh, not all boards uh, we have found have been as diligent in keeping the records uh, um, as other boards. And so uh, going back, especially multiple years back, uh, we might not find minutes or we might not find uh,
1: I've seen arbitrators go both ways on this. Your, Your duty is to provide the records that are in your possession. If you don't have it in your possession, you're under the obligation to take all reasonable steps to obtain those records. If minutes just don't exist and you can't recreate them, they don't exist. But you can't just say, oh, we don't have them there. For example, the, the most common example that arises is they ask for re- your financials right when you sent them to the tax, your tax advisor to do their audit or their uh, you know, review of your, of your tax records. You don't have them anymore, so you can't provide them access. What the arbitrator says, you're under an obligation to go get them from your accountant in a reasonable time period to be able to provide them. Do
4: you have to provide records, meetings and so forth
1: over seven years or not? Seven years, I think, is the longest seven period years. you're required to maintain something, except they just changed it. <laughs> exactly. This legislative yeah. session, for condominiums, you're required to keep minutes forever. What about <laughs> HOAs? HOAs? The statute doesn't talk about HOAs. I think there were a couple others, I think there's other couple other documents that you're required to keep forever, but you're now required to keep minutes in a condo forever.
2: Good luck. (laughs) Go ahead.
4: Uh
1: I'm sorry, can everyone please quiet down, we can't hear the question.
2: It actually says, the statute says, or your authorized representative. So you can authorize someone to go and get them for you. Sure. Any other questions? All right, so what are your official records? Here is a huge list of them that we're gonna go through. Basically anything that you have for your association regarding the operations, conduct, anything that's transpired, has to be kept, Um, and like Carlos said, it used to be for minutes seven years, for condos it will change for you July 1st to infinity, so uh, I'd like to see all those boards that are going to keep those records, because we know how that goes. Management agreements, leases, Bills of sale, accounting records, and accounting records, if you, you are working with a management company, you're probably in good shape here, but I see a lot of atrocious accounting records from board members that are passed down that some are kept by hand, and we have a really difficult time keeping those, but all of the receipts, the expenditures, all of the, those things have to be kept for the association's records. Ballots, sign-in sheets, voting proxies, those must be kept for one year from the period of the election or the vote that was done. Rental records for condos, your frequently asked questions and answers sheet that do need to be updated annually. Um, Other documents, correspondence or other communication from the division, audio-video recordings made by the board or a committee. What is not available for inspection? Records prepared by or at the direction of an association attorney, which reflect legal conclusions. Attorney-client privilege type of work is not open until the conclusion of those proceedings. Certain information connected with the approval of a lease, which makes sense for identity theft purposes, social security numbers. Personnel records of association or management company employees. Payroll, disciplinary health, et cetera, is not available for inspection. Really, anything that would be covered by our HIPAA laws or um, that could lead to identity theft are not available for inspection. Go
4: ahead. You can go back about three slides. I'm sorry, but I've been all day long over at City Hall. This particular slide is a real problem because we have a new development going in next door. I go, they can't provide me with a plot, they can't provide me with anything. Because all the plats are three to four years old and mm-hmm. they're not enforced anymore. So everything on that chart that you've got there, you can just throw it in the trash can. Worst, worst timing. So what happens?
2: Are you a member of that association? No, I am
4: not. We're okay. the one next to it.
2: Okay. So That's you wouldn't even be privy then to those official records. But those members who are privy to them should demand for They're not any cap. except
4: thank God the owner of the development contacted me and he's going to do some of these things but not okay. all of them. Yeah it
2: sounds like it's gonna be a headache.
4: So it's, it's pretty it all depends check with the county I'm sorry? Check with the county of certain departments. I did that right. since we had a sewer issue. Yeah they don't have and the sewer they were able to find the pass. Yeah we were in St. John's we're and, uh, the people are going through
5: on the official records you have down at the current roster of homeowners, mailing addresses, phone numbers, and then a couple slides later you say you can't really show those same yeah. okay, The so. owners
2: actually have to opt in to provide that information for it to be provided to the association. Otherwise, if they haven't opted in, then you can't provide it to the membership. The other thing that's not available for inspection are the association's passwords. You don't need to provide your QuickBooks password, for example. These are the kind of common sense issues that you wouldn't be providing to your membership. And you're not liable as an association for the inadvertent disclosure of information that was voluntarily provided by an owner and not requested by the association. Go ahead.
4: What about emails between board members?
2: As far as providing those emails?
3: If
2: the entire board is copied
1: on an email and the is confirmed. The you just love to throw those hand grenades at yeah. us,
3: don't
2: yeah. you? I, I was going to say this is one of those issues that it really depends on the attorney you're talking to in all honesty. But as far as if, if the association is only making decisions by email then by all means those must be held as part of the official records and not only that you might get yourself in trouble because you're not holding open meetings but if those decisions are being made by email other than that if it's just communications then that's not something that the board members are required to keep as part of the official records unless again it it comes to that point where now there's Proposals in those emails as to bids or something else that the association is required to maintain. That would be part of the official record. We'll
1: move Bear down on that a little more. So there's actually court and arbitration rulings on this. If there's a quorum of the board and the property manager is copied on it, that is an official record, regardless of what type of email is being used. If the property manager is not on that email, and the board members are using their personal emails, there are are arbitration decisions that say that is not an official record, because the board member is not required to provide access to their computer for them to view those emails. However, if your association has association dedicated email accounts, you know, laPlayacondo at gmail.com, president of laPlayacondo at gmail.com, All of those emails are official records, they must be maintained, they must be produced. So the area that gets gray is when the board is sending emails from their own email addresses, even if the manager's on there, because most of the time those things aren't maintained by management companies or by the board. The question is, should they? And if the manager's on it, yes. If they're not, nah, depends. But if you want to be conservative, and we always advise risk aversion, If you're having substantive discussions about association business and a quorum of the board is involved, this probably should be an official record.
2: And this is a balancing test. The reason why some associations do create email addresses with their association name as if you were part of a litigation and they wanted to discover all of your emails and you didn't want your personal ones to be discovered and you were able to show that, look, I use just this email for association business, you may be able to separate it so that the court doesn't allow the opposing counsel to actually drill into all your personal emails. So, that is a reason why an association would have those email addresses. But, like Carlos said, it's a catch-22 because when you do get into litigation, sometimes you can't um, get past that, and the court says, no, you, you are required to provide them all of your emails and they look through everything.
5: So, the board and condo. Com has all of our personal emails <coughs> plus the property managers.
4: So, all of those transactions are considered. Yeah, probably.
1: Yeah. And remember, oh, yeah. in, in the statute where it talks about official records, the last section that in there <laughs> has a catch-all, all written records regarding the operation of the association. That's really broad. And I I I know I can argue that board member emails are official records. I know I could, I know I can prevail on that in court. Whether someone's going to argue it or not, whether it's ever going to get there, that's another question. But yeah, I think that you can argue that.
2: All right, this is our last segment is on financial items. So we're going to breeze right through it. We have about 10 minutes remaining. Budget. So your budget is a roadmap of where your association is going over the next year. It's going to have all the money coming in and all the money that you expect to go out. It's not an exact science. For a condo association, your proposed budget must be included with the notice on the budget and it must include your reserve schedule as it is fully funded unless you've already had the vote to reduce funding for your reserves and we'll get to that in a couple minutes. Um, For homeowners associations, look at your governing documents as far as what sort of notice needs to be sent for a budget meeting. Sometimes they say 30 days but we always recommend 14 days. The statute doesn't require 14 days, but we believe it gives you good justification for your owners to give them notice of that meeting. Your budget's going to have your money coming in, assessments, interests, insurance proceeds, any other form of income, expenses, all the money going out that's coming out of your association's budget. Other requirements for a condo budget, you have to have the beginning and end dates for the period covered by the budget, something good to have for an HOA budget as well. Total expenses, including reserves on at least an annual basis, and the assessments per unit. Also a good idea for HOAs, but not required by statute. For your reserves, you have your capital expenditures, which are the purchase or replacement of an asset with life of more than one year, or addition to an existing asset to extend its life to more than one year. Deferred maintenance, any of those projects, maintenance repair that will be performed less frequently than yearly, For example, um, maybe pool pumps, you're having them serviced every two years. Maybe your gates, a lot of gates get hit though, so I see those serviced multiple times a year. But those are the idea with deferred maintenance and capital um, improvement. Reserves are any funds other than the operating which are restricted for deferred maintenance and capital expenditures, including the items required by the condo act, uh, which are paving, roofs, paint, and anything over 15% of your budget. Go ahead.
4: here? I don't know. We really don't know. We don't have any of ours. And I'm just curious if there are any
2: requirements in that. One. So these are the ones that are required for condominium associations. I will get to HOAs in a second. Roofs, building, painting, pavement, resurfacing, any expenditure over $10,000 and also if there's anything in your documents as far as a percentage requirement. Your budget must include the fully funded reserves with that proposed um, reserve schedule. For HOAs on the other hand, the association is only deemed to have provided for reserves if the developer initially established them or if the membership affirmatively elects to provide for reserves. So those are the two requirements. If that has not happened, you just have a slush fund, but you're not required to maintain it and keep it to that max capacity, the fully funded annually, like you would if it was established in one of these two ways. Condos, on the other hand, have statutory requirements those four items that we talked about that you must have reserves for. Reserve calculation, estimated life, remaining estimated life in years, the anticipated replacement and deferred maintenance cost, and the anticipated beginning balance in the reserve account. I like to um, show you an example. We have the straight line method and then the pooled method. For straight lines, for this particular association, The estimated useful life for their roof is 12 years. They have one year remaining. It's going to cost them $95,000. As of December 31st of 2017, they had $87,000. So because they only have one year left, this year they have to fund that whole $8,000 to get to, uh uh-oh.
3: We're
2: done. Yay! Okay. It's rushing me along, I guess. So we have to collect the full 8,000 to be, and that's what it means, fully funded. We have to collect that full 8,000 this year. Pavement resurfacing, there's 18 years. Every 18 years it needs to be done. We have seven years remaining. That means for this year, based on how much we have in our budget, we only have to collect 35.04. And that's just the math divided out between how much is in there, how much we have, divided by the number of years left. Pooled reserves, on the other hand, You have one pool of funds and you're going to have an extended cash outflow for your association. If this is all completely over your head and you're thinking, why the heck did she put this at the end? It's because you all want to go to sleep now. (laughs) These are the type of issues you want to work with your manager, your accountant, or even a reserve advisor. There's people that actually will come out to your community and do a reserve study and help you program this all out. Because this is the type of stuff that we all fell asleep during math class when they were working this stuff out. So get help for these issues. But this is how you put together a pooled reserve schedule. The nice thing about pooled reserves is you can use money from your roof fund to pay for your pavement resurfacing. With the straight line method, if you run out of money in your roof fund because your roofs go bad and they have to be replaced this year but you don't have enough money, you need a membership vote to take the money out of the payment. So that's the big difference here. Here you're able to pool your funds and use them for any one of the reserve purposes. Commingling any portion of the assessments for a condominium association that are for reserves must be deposited in the reserve account within 30 days of receipt. You can also have other reserves. These are not the statutory reserves. Some association boards establish an insurance deductible reserve, hurricane cleanup, those sorts of things, the slush funds that don't need to be maintained pursuant to statute. For waiving reserves or providing less than full funding, you can accomplish that at an owner's meeting and you're voting um, by a majority of those present in person or by proxy to actually reduce the funding of the reserves or provide less than full funding. That only applies to one fiscal year. Um, If you're going to do that, you have to have a limited proxy with this language. Last topic, financial reporting. What's your year-end financial report? We are past the tax deadline, but if any of you have not already engaged an accountant, you must have a year-end financial report that is provided to the membership showing the health of your association, money coming in, money that went out over the last year. Um, And that's required for both condos and homeowners associations. That is due within 90 days after the end of the fiscal year, and no later than 120 days or on the date provided in the bylaws. The owner, the association, asks to actually provide it. There's different types of financial reporting, it is all based on your association's revenue and also what's required in the governing documents. So an association with less than $150,000 in annual revenue can do a report of cash receipts and disbursements, or there's the financial statements which are compiled, reviewed, and audited. Go to. For condos, 50 or more units and an annual revenue of 500,000 or more, you're doing an audit, 50 or more units and annual revenues of 300,000. But less than 500,000, a review, 50 or more units, 150,000 or more, but less than 300,000 compiled, and the segments are similar for h ways. Your big takeaway here is, even if this is what it says in the statute, if your documents require you to have a higher level of reporting, you must comply with your documents. I have seen five unit condo associations required to perform an audit annually. It is their biggest expense, the most that they have to collect from their owners for their assessments, but they're actually required to have an annual audit. That is the first thing I recommended that they amend out of their documents because that is a nightmare. Audits and those reviewed financial statements must be performed by an independent Florida licensed CPA. The compile does not need to be prepared by a CPA. All the components are basically what's in your budget, money coming in, money coming out, and some reserve disclosures. And you are able to provide a lower type of report, for example, if you wanted to provide compiled versus audited, but again, you're having the membership approve that through a membership vote, and that must be done before the end of the fiscal year. The fiscal year is over, you can no longer take that vote. I've had associations take that vote on New Year's Eve because they had to get it done, but they got it in. That financial reporting requirement may not be waived for more than three years. If you are still under developer control, they may cast their votes only for the first two fiscal years and that's the, these are both for a condominium association. For homeowner's association, 20% of the membership can petition to have a different level of year-end reporting so you can go up and or down on that chart and you would have that membership vote to go in that direction. And that is it. We made it right on the dot. Thank you everyone. We will email out the presentation so you all have it. Please let us know if you have any questions. We'll be here. So, we enjoyed you. Thank you so much for coming.
0: Sure thanks for listening. If you could do us a huge favor and rate and subscribe, you can do it right in your iTunes app. Please shoot us an email if you have questions or topics, anything that we could help you with. campcontact at gmail.com. C-A-A-M-P contact at gmail.com. Thanks and we'll catch up with you next week.